Welcome to Access Control, a podcast providing practical security advice for startups, advice from people who've been there. Each episode, we'll interview a leader in their field and learn best practices and practical tips for securing your org. For today's episode, I'll be talking to Luca Caratoni, co-founder of Dorinsec. Dorinsec is an independent security research and development company focused on vulnerability, discovery and remediation. The Teleport team has been working with Dorinsec for the last two years and have put together multiple security assessments for Teleport. In this episode, we'll get a pen tester's view into the current state of startup security. Hi, Luca. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Before we chatted, pen tester came up as sort of an interesting term. What if you can some background? What is a pen tester and why you think it's not the best term? Sure, sure. Let me let me give a quick overview. In my mind, pen tester recalls the traditional black box testing, which is something that uh, we as an industry have been trying to push for the past 15 years as a simulation of, a, of an attack. But then over time, realized attackers don't have scope and time limitation. As a customer, when you engage a pen testing company, you give a scope and you give a timeline that it's often driven by your budget. And those are not things that normally an attacker uh, has. We realized an industry that was not very effective, was not a real simulation. And we finally came to the conclusion that it would rather, uh, it would rather be better to approach testing in a, in a different way. So I, I do prefer terms like security engineer or security researcher. And particularly security engineers suggest it's, it's an engineering job. So it's a software engineering job. It's software engineer applied. The shift between black box and what some people now refer to gray box or white box testing, I think it's, uh, it's pretty important. It's, I like security engineer versus uh, pen tester. People who are unfamiliar, can you describe the difference between black box and gray box testing? Sure. Abso- yeah, absolutely. In a black box case, companies are just giving a target uh, with minimal information and no internal uh, visibility on uh, code or documentation or even details around the specific targets. Traditionally, and I'm, I'm talking about when network pen testing was a thing, target would be a set of in- internet uh, you know, IP addresses, and that's pretty much what would be, constitute the scope of the engagement. Now, when, uh, when we talk about white box testing and gray box testing, we're, we're referring to approaching a target from a from engineering standpoint where we have access to the code, we have access to uh, system documentation, um, potentially even the engineers that build uh, the system so that we can uh, better understand how it works, uh, we can maximize the return on investment. So in the days that are allocated for a project, find more bugs. That's basically the shift going from, I know nothing about the target and I have to somehow simulate it breaking to Let's let's try to get as many from you know as many details as possible, understand quickly how the system works in order to subvert it. Yeah, teams you work with are they mostly web applications or they mobile apps? Is there a particular field that you focus in on? Yeah, so we are we are we're known to be good at web and mobile. Those are the two macro area or specialization. So web, pretty much all, all web technologies and and mobile. Typically, user user space application and OIM, so privileged apps uh, type of work. And then when you see the sort of state of the internet, what sort of keeps you up at the night? Well, I actually uh, sleep pretty well. Um, <laughs> I, I guess being a consultant help. Uh, you know, if, at the end of the day, I mean, we're trying to do our best, but the customer is ultimately responsible for the system and the products. Mm-hmm. Um, Having said that, I mean, I, I have had roles where I was responsible for the overall security roadmap and the security of a system or an application, and you have to be prepared. And then, you know, if you have 
done your best, that's pretty much all you can do. It's important how you how you react to a compromise rather than always trying to prevent that compromise. The, the right state of mind of, okay, we've done our best with the resources that we have. We're prepared on, the, on those things. Uh, I guess that's the, that's the best people can do. Yeah, and when it happens, it's not a surprise. From both the incident response uh, standpoint, but also like things like, you know, how you manage logistics, how you manage stress, kind of be prepared and, and, and work towards those moments while securing the enterprise, whether it's IT security or pure product security. Yeah. You provide a range of services to startups. At what point do you think a startup should hire an external party to help them? We do provide pro, uh, product security uh, testing services primarily uh, in, in the application security space. For a startup, there are primarily two main uh, activities that they would have to perform to do a secure design and secure implementation of a system. So for on one side, you have at the very beginning of the project, you have to design the system. If you are pure security maturities at a certain point, you might want to also do threat modeling around the, the system that you are designing. So that's where it would be best to have someone in-house that can, can do that part so that can actually review the overall design, even before starting to code and implement it. Mm -hmm. If the startup doesn't have that resource, uh, well, then I would recommend to look for help, even if that just means for you know a day or two of someone reviewing the, the architecture and, and thinking about the security model of uh, what you know, someone is building. The same way you'd have an architect look over your cloud infrastructure, they would look over the same thing, but with a security lens. So if possible done internally, if not, you know, outsourced. Later on, when when there is a, a product, maybe what is the right time is probably when you're onboarding the first customer, or right before you're onboarding the first customer. Security testing is clearly an important part of you know, the step that you can make to to secure an application. Very often, startups don't have that level of expertise in house, and so that's when they basically uh, look for partners to help with the with the security testing. Time and the resources permitting, I would recommend to have people in-house for both uh, activities. You know, if people are thinking about building an in-house security proficiency, who would be sort of the first person they should look for? Do you go straight for a CISO or do you go for a security engineer? Yeah, yes. I, I guess it really depends on uh, what's the need. Like, why, why are you thinking about security? Many startups discover security as, as a request from other customers through compliance you know, SOC 2 request or things like that. So they basically uh, understand that a customer are interested about their security of their product. And, and as a result, uh, they eventually understand that they need someone to take care of that. Um, and, you know, and, and if compliance is your first priority, then you should probably hire someone that uh, understand the technical part good enough, but is also uh, capable of, he or she is also capable of talking to auditors and, and you know, doing governance around the compliance part. So you go through SOC 2, which through it's lots of paperwork and yeah, it's some technology, but yeah. a lot of sort of these are my controls and these are the processes I have in place. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't make sense to hire, you know, someone else if it, basically what you want to, to do is, is compliance. But then on the other hand, if you really want to do product security, which is actual security for the platform or, or the software you're building, uh, then my general recommendation is a strong security engineer. Uh, so someone that is close enough to software engineering and has, has either lived the software engineering life and struggles or uh, is close enough to 
to recommend a good trade-off between usability, security, and product features and whatnot. Because uh, you know, at the very beginning of a startups, you often don't have all those roles. You you might need a person that is capable of making those choices. And then do you have any tips for finding these security engineers? I, I wish. I mean, it, it's very <laughs> difficult. Yeah, the, the tips I can give, which are you know, not, not really secret. First of all, certification are kind of useless. Uh, and it might be controversial for many, but you know, realistically, I don't think there are very good certification out there. And why they serve a purpose as keyword for recruiters? Okay, yeah. Um, you know, non non technical recruiters, uh, they generally fail to represent the skill set of a person, especially if you are talking about roles uh, like a technical strong security engineer. So looking at you know code of you know an open source. Uh, uh, repositories or research that have been published at uh, conferences or advisories, in our case, advisory and exploits, so the software used to, to exploit vulnerabilities, uh, are probably the best way to understand when a person uh, is good. Yeah. It's good enough. I think you mentioned previously um, when we chatted that the industry is very heavy on the offensive, but there's not as much on the defensive side of the ship, as it were. And so I guess that's sort of where you pretty take an engineer who's more interested in the security aspects of their code and develop as opposed to on the offensive. That would probably be tip number two is it's easier to teach security, I feel, to a good software engineer than it is to, to teach software engineering to uh, someone with a breaker mentality. And and. Frankly, I've lead that type of transition myself where I started my career as a, as a pure consultant. And then when I had to fix the first bugs in production, I actually realized how, how difficult it is and how precise you have to be. Really understanding how things work ultimately make you a better, a better security engineer. Uh, you will find more bugs if you understand really how things work. Yeah. So that, that would be definitely a recommendation. It don't take a lot of time researching and disclosing vulnerabilities in open source projects. I was on your blog and you've done a bunch of work around Electron.js, which is a very popular cross-platform framework used by Slack and VS Code. And this is also a pretty common tool that startups would pick quicker to market because you could you know, write your app once and deploy it to all these other places. So what's your thoughts on the compromise between speed to market fee security? That, that's what company need and wants. I mean, like the, the idea of using web technologies to build desktop app is something that uh, people really wanted for a very long time because we started thinking that the browser would solve all our problems. And then we started seeing websites that were you know, Chrome only and realized that it didn't make a lot of sense, not to mention performance or other integration that you would you might want to have uh, with your desktop, and so I think naturally, yeah, I mean the desktop here to stay. Uh, I'm not a you know big believer of uh, like, let's do everything from a browser. In terms of security, I mean Electron is honestly our best uh, bet up there. A lot of people are not very happy with the security of Electron, but I think they either don't understand the threat model, or they are uh, you know looking at implementation and design choices that were made uh, a few years ago. Electron, today's Electron, I mean, uh, version 12 of Electron is a pretty solid platform for building desktop app with web technology. There are obviously some uh, some limitation. So it's, as usual, it's important to apply secure coding and know that the framework and, and its limitation, keep the framework always up to date. But if you follow those principles, uh, then you can build secure uh, apps uh, with Electron. Yeah, I guess that applies to everything, you know, keeping up to date. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. 
but you know there were there were a security concern and a problem in the early version of Electron uh, because of the immaturity of the framework, and and that's something that I would say any framework goes through. You know, even from a technical standpoint, but also in terms of uh, governance. Election started, you know, within GitHub, and now it's a, it's a software with many engineers working full time across multiple big tech companies. Clearly, it's it's a mature project, and with that comes also a lot of uh, maturity from a security standpoint. Yeah, this is sort of in your decision early on of which technology you pick. There's probably more inherent risks with a brand new project than something that has been sort of well tested and proven on larger companies. Yeah, I mean, and I guess that's uh, that's an important choice to make, and I don't think many people actually do that. And I think that would actually solve a lot of uh, security troubles if there would be a bit more attention on which framework or which library or you know which which uh, even type of design to pick when when building something new. Yeah. And I guess, you know, things are getting better because framework are overall all getting better. I mean, cross-scripting, if you use React or Angular, you really have to be, to, you know, to, to make some, some good mistakes to, to introduce cross-scripting. So the framework enables better security practices. Yeah. And then talking of cross-site script, five or six years ago, it was pretty top like vulnerability now you're saying it's kind of gone away what's the sort of top vulnerabilities that you're currently seeing there are there are a few vulnerabilities that i think are getting getting attention i mean we had a couple of years ago or you know four or five years ago we had a a good influx of deserialization vulnerability uh, java deserialization being kind of the first one even though the technique and you know the the class of vulnerability is 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 very old i mean it's, it's something that's been around for 15 years but there was kind of a, a, you know, a new movement around finding and exploiting deserialization vulnerability. The last few years, the last two years, uh, been, uh, you know, in my opinion, the, the, the most interesting classes are server-side across forgery. So the ability for a service exposed to the user to make uh, arbitrary HTTP, HTTPS request. Which, uh, you know, just to mention a notable example, I mean, the latest uh, Microsoft Exchange vulnerability one of the vulnerabilities in the chain was through a service request forgery. It's definitely a, a new and important class of vulnerability. The other one, which I think will be, we'll see increasingly more more exploited vulnerabilities, uh, prototype pollution, uh, particularly you know Node and, uh, and JavaScript. What's the vulnerability? So the prototype pollution is about basically changing the prototype of the object. And depending on how an object is used, uh, it can be either used to subvert the execution flow, uh, bypass uh, authorization, and in some cases even even execute remote code, uh, you know remote code. So it's a vulnerability that does require business logic understanding. It's it's not a it's not an easy vulnerability to to scan and uh, and detect. But uh, I think we will see more and more of those because I I don't think we as a, as a security community give a lot of attention to that particular class of uh, danger. Yeah, and do you think that's because it's not? easily found in scanners, it's like it goes hidden until it's used. For several reasons, clearly JavaScript and Node are becoming more and more popular. A lot more people are spending time understanding the, the security implication of those technologies. It's it's also a fairly new class of vulnerability. I mean, in terms of like, there haven't been a lot of research uh, prior, a few major paper released in the past years. As usual, vulnerability starts with someone opening this, uh, this kind of worms and then slowly the security community experimenting and understanding more about the implication of all. So I think we just got started with the prototype pollution. 
You want to know the top 10, I put the top three programs that cause the most problems in pen tests. From a network perspective, which is not something I'm, I'm really doing in the past, you know, the few years since we started doing because we're focused on, on pure application security. If I think about myself 15 years ago when testing networks, uh, having uh, you know, the type of small onipods that are uh, available today, canary tokens and things like that, those are definitely effective uh, tools uh, that can can quickly uncover uh, a pen test uh, that is going on. In terms of uh, pure product security or application security, uh, I can't really think of anything else more than you know maybe obfuscation and stuff, which would delay would delay the, the engagement with, in my opinion, not, not much value. Uh, and I think this is back to the initial you know from where we started. Why would you why yeah. would you obfuscate the code that you give to a pen tester? where instead of finding bugs, the person would have to spend time reverse engineering and, and trying to deal with get the code. Kind of makes no sense. It's kind of like a meta problem. It's not really yes. the core of the problem. And, uh, yeah. and as long as you don't base your security out of uh, security through obscurity, the obfuscation as, you know, obfuscation, sorry, as a place, because it clearly helps to increase the, the barrier for, for someone to, to start poking and, and understanding the, the application. But I don't think you really want to test that during a product security testing. What you want to test is you want to find vulnerability. You want to understand if your security mechanism work, not whether the obfuscation yeah. is strong enough. Mm-hmm. And then as part of my research for this, I stumbled upon your Twitter account. One of the things I noticed was a pinned tweet that said, given sufficient bug density, security design is irrelevant, which is kind of funny because most startups have an insane amount of bugs. I love this quote. It's a quote by Ian Beer, uh, who is an amazing researcher at uh, Google's Project Zero, uh, which is a specialized uh, team at Google responsible for finding uh, zero-day vulnerability and as they say, uh, make exploitation uh, harder. Extremely talented researcher. And I think, I don't know what what were his intention, but to me that quote means uh, you can spend a lot of time designing and and applying security engineering practices, but then eventually if you have enough bugs in your software, all the assumptions you made are just broken and, and it really doesn't matter. It is still good to put some hours thinking about design and doing proper thread modeling. But then ultimately, the implementation is, is the real deal. Do you have any tips for sort of prioritizing what people should look out for as far as bugs and issues? It will probably depends on the type of, uh, of software. I think we have seen already we have seen already this type of approach when when exploiting software. Where today, if if someone has to exploit a modern target or you know a, a mainstream application. It's generally not you know not exploited with a single bug. It's exploited with chains of bugs, and that's because, for example, if, if you think about a browser exploit, the first expo- the first vulnerability that is exploited allows the attacker to compromise the renderer, the tab inside uh, Chrome. If you're talking about Chrome, or you know the the, the 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 tab that is hosting the page that is it's loaded, but then you have a lot of other security measures uh, and techniques that have been implemented to prevent full compromise. So things like sandboxing, process isolation, the attacker has to now find another vulnerability. And you, you see that even though the design is solid because the browser vendor have decided to, for example, introduce sandboxing, full chain still exists. It's a good reminder that uh, secure design alone uh, won't uh, completely save us. Yeah. Another thing that sort of stood out to me, you mentioned that Porn to Own, which is 
a competition to get access to systems. And they said this year they focused a lot on web security and cloud. I think also maybe Tesla as well. But keeping on the web security mm-hmm. and cloud, do you think that cloud and web apps have had sort of a low, a sort of a, they've not been as prominent targets? And do you think this is sort of a shift of people focusing more time on web security and cloud targets? Let's, uh, let's clarify a bit. So Pond to one is a competition that is basically an open call to external researcher to come at the, in the past was to come at, at the conference. Now it's a, so it's a virtual event where people can target application or you know, mobile devices or, or you know, as you mentioned, uh, cars uh, like a Tesla. It's always been uh, generally seen as a as a type of competition that would attract people with what people generally refer as like low-level skills uh, because that, that was referring also to the type of technology that those applications and those systems were made of. Now, I mentioned it, it's, uh, it was, in my opinion, a very important one-to-one because the switch to web uh, it's not just a switch in terms of technology. I mean, one of the categories that was in the latest point to one so earlier this April, it was enterprise communication, uh, Zoom and uh, Microsoft Team. Those components, th- those applications, in particular Microsoft Team, it, it's all based on web technology. I mean, Microsoft Team is an electron app. Clearly, there was a shift in uh, the technology that people are using to build application. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more importantly, to, to me, uh, in terms of the point-to-one context, is how companies react uh, for vulnerabilities and how researchers have to, you know, play with that if they want to win the games. In the past, it used to be that if if Microsoft or any other vendors that is generally part of the competition wants to patch a vulnerability, they have to release a patch and that's, you know, would have to be distributed and then the day before the competition, the organizer would update software to be to the latest version. Now, because it's traffic is passing through cloud services, for a searcher, I mean, you have to send your malicious payload through a service that is owned and managed by by company and can be fixed at any point in time. So there is a big shift in, you know, I can, as a, as a security tester, as a security engineer, there's a big shift from, okay, I can test the exact copy of the application that most likely I will have in front of me during the competition versus, you know, I can do my testing prior to the, the event, but then at, you, don't, you don't control the cloud, you don't control uh, the communication within the cloud, and the, the vendors could have patched uh, your bug uh, in a matter of minutes, even. Yes, the software is never static. I guess it's always exactly. continuous deployment, continuous delivery. Yeah, it's always so, so that's, changing. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's an interesting thing to see. And uh, I I don't think a team is. I mean, I, I'm I'm fairly confident. Even uh, uh, Zoom and 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 other of those targets had uh, had a good, a good chunk of uh, cloud infrastructure that was involved in, in those attempts. And by the way, it's uh, yeah. it's one to one because if you uh, if you break in, so if you break the application, you got to really get to own the device. So in case of a, you know, of a device that is running a browser, you, the contestant also wins the, the laptop. And then, yeah, with the Tesla, you, you know, you would win the Tesla, but no much. You get the car. Brings me to my next question. You know, Amazon has its shared responsibility model. There's a range of different cloud providers. Like what's the best cloud for secure setups that you've seen? Or is it on the team to sort of architect the best solution? If you're talking to more like cloud um, providers, I feel like 
they are slowly all catching up in terms of services provided. I, I would say, I mean, I am definitely more expert than on AWS than, than I am with the GCP or, or Azure, but I think AWS has pushed a lot of uh, security feature recently, uh, which makes it pretty, pretty interesting from a security standpoint. Uh, we talked, for example, briefly about uh, server-side request forgery. One of the typical techniques that uh, attackers would use when you have a server-side request forgery is the idea to access the metadata server of the EC2 instances uh, in order to extract information that is stored when you provision machine. And that's something that, for example, Amazon has, has mitigated by introducing a new version of the metadata server that requires authentication. So clearly, there is an intention to provide tools that can be used to build a secure, secure application, secure platform. That's one, just you know, just one example. There are obviously a lot more. Uh, you know, when I'm not a big fan of web application firewalls, I think providing those things in a seamless way on, through AWS is it's pretty cool. HSM, yeah. HSM, right? Cloud HSM and stuff like that are things that generally you cannot really afford. Uh, I mean, they're still expensive on the cloud, but clearly you won't be able to afford if you're a small startup um, and you have to put on-prem a real HSM. For people on the defensive side, there's obviously a range of different tools out there that people can purchase and buy. Do you have any tips for the top four tools that people should look at purchasing? I would say don't buy tools, but rather invest in people. Uh, that's kind of my way out to, the, to this question. Yeah. There is a, there is an interesting uh, presentation that uh, Aaron Mir uh, did at T2 conference in 2016, uh, with something like uh, learning the wrong, uh, the wrong lessons from, uh, from offense, where he talks about how defense, and particularly defense tools, are not really catching up. You know, they're generally... Cannot be can, cannot be used to solve all, all the security needs. I'm saying you need you need people because even if you buy a tool, if you buy an appliance, then someone has to install, someone has to maintain it, someone has to tune it. So you need the expertise. To me, that's that's the base. Uh, sometimes you don't even need to buy. I mean, like sometimes adjusting and tuning uh, any you know open source projects that are out there will already put you in a you know quite ahead of the the competition you know there are i mean there are utility that uh is a, is a, is in a startup or an enterprise you can um, you can buy some 2fa devices uh, yubikey or solo keys uh, for for you know providing stronger uh, stronger dedication and and things like that so those are good things to purchase but uh, you know in general of blinking boxes uh, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan for investing in people, if you sort of have a team or sort of more junior engineer who wants to get more into security, where would they go to get resources? What's tips for sort of up-leveling their skills? Security is a big field. So I think it would be really important to understand what the person is passionate about. I mean, to me, that's the most uh, important quality. It really, it really takes a lot of passion and a lot of uh, long nights to understand how things work and, and experiment outside the pure work duty. So if you are not really enjoying the continuous learning, I, I don't think it's possible to be uh, you know, very good at what we do in this field. So understanding what you, what you like as a, as a person, you know, as, a, as a team leader, I think understanding what the team members enjoy doing, I think it's, it's important. And then basically double down on, on what you discover. So if it's, info, you know, if it's incident response, 
you know, take that path and, and basically try to read all possible resources out there. If it's uh, through application security, start reading uh, all the article that goes on Reddit, NetSec, start reading and, and understanding, you know, the root causes of vulnerability, reading advisories, installing all software in order to understand how vulnerabilities manifest and, and what's the root cause of such vulnerabilities, building exploits, like really hands-on practice. It's the real way in my opinion too. Yeah, yeah. And that's better than, you know, getting certifications. I sort of mentioned earlier, it's better to get your hands dirty. Some certification they won't even they won't even increase your the level of skill set just because of how they're designed. And even the technical certifications, it's really difficult to build a certification that it's uh, updated in terms of the challenges and the technologies that are used today's yeah, it's not a good representation of the skill set of a person, whether whether that particular person passed or not a, a you know, particular certification. So Amazon launched a AWS security practitioner. They've reduced the time. It's only valid for a year, which kind of makes sense. They seem to launch 10 new products each year anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, things change a lot in that period of time. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, okay, the, uh, just to be clear, the certification I was referring was mostly about information security certification. People who are taking vendor-specific certification, I think there is a value in that because it's you're clearly going very deep into a particular technology or, or aspect of a particular vendor. And I think it kind of makes sense because, you know, I'm thinking about the old Cisco certification for, for routers and stuff, but it, it makes sense. What I was talking about, information security certification, uh, hackers. Durensec has been a remote first company since you began. And obviously everyone currently in April of 2021 is remote due to the pandemic. But you had a few tips on providing practical tips for working from home. Do you have any tips for working from home, but also keeping your sort of workforce secure? It's a difficult question and topic to, to solve. Uh, it helps for a company to have uh, like a technical, you know, technical team members. And clearly, if you have people that are, you know, not only understand the technical component, but they're also uh, security paranoid, as, as most of us, you know, security engineers are, then clearly we can uh, push the boundary on on certain things where you know, normally you won't be able to not to compromise usability too much. Uh, one example is we we encrypt all internal email uh, with GPG email, uh, so. I'm not a big fan of GPG either, but if you if you work in a restricted environment when everyone has the same client and you can use a plugin and it automatically encrypts the email, it's basically a no-brainer. Um, where you know if it's providing some some security on top of what it is not secure, which is email. But clearly, you want that won't scale outside your company or even within your company. It won't scale if you don't have technical people that know how to manage keys and, and install those things. Um, on a more, I think, practical terms, things like you know full disk encryption, disabling you know guest accounts, enforcing screensaver, and things like that. I think are still uh, still very relevant today. Most companies, I mean, I think they, they understand those type of solution and they generally they generally apply those. But then you can go a step further. And for example, we talked before about FIDO key and, and two-factor authentication. Clearly, I mean, it's, it's the time where I, I can't see company not using those mechanisms. 
when they are now so well integrated to major platform and uh, software as a service that I, I don't really understand why uh, people would not invest a few dollars on on buying Fido keys for, for for each person. And do you think there's any specific service in Safari they should try and set up a second factor on? Emails. I mean, email, emails is the door to everything, right? Like, let's not forget if uh, someone compromise your email, the attacker can then request password reset. And so basically, the email is your password manager, if you want. So that definitely, I would go as the first one. But that applies to basically communication tools and wiki or uh, you know any 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 tool that is used to store and, and exchange information which include code for example github or bitbucket or gitlab or whatever that's some great tips i find it fascinating that you encrypt email internally can you tell me a bit more why we're a mac shop and we use uh, G, you know mail and there is a thing called gpg mail yeah. Uh, which is a plugin that you literally installed and does certificate management. And, and then you can basically set by default that all the emails that goes to, we do like add like email, they are automatically encrypted. So I, you know, I don't have to do anything and the email were encrypted, which has a, a lot of advantages because first of all, if someone compromises our Gmail account, because we are picked by G Suite, they want to have access to the email that we exchange. Of course, you know, if you write me an email, that's not encrypted. So that is on my mailbox. But um, the email that we exchange internally are, are all encrypted. All encrypted. Um, so, so that's one advantage. And there is another advantage, which is an internal advantage, I feel, which is if you don't encrypt emails, uh, what happens is that people will start reading emails from the phone. And phone are much easier devices to lose. We were brainstorming on, okay, how do we... Yeah, how do we block that without having to ask people to install MDM or things like that, uh, which I'm not a big fan. And this seemed like a good solution because, you know, people can still receive their email on the phone, but they're encrypted. So if they don't explicitly pull uh, down the PGP private key from their laptop where it's generated, which they don't because it's not very convenient and, and, and what, at least uh, like we don't care if the device is lost. Do you have any other last kind of thoughts or questions? Going back to one of the questions you asked, you know, what keeps me up at night. A lot of things are broken. If we want to be optimistic, I they are less broken than they were 15 years ago when I started. So we're, we're doing something. The problem is that we're not just keeping up with, with the technology. And so we get to secure stuff that it's you know, not, not obsolete, but it's going to be soon obsolete. And so we, we are, have to catch up a bit faster in order to provide tools for non-technical people that are secure by default. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is, I think, some some concern that I personally have, like around privacy and advertising and things like that, that you know, will affect younger generations. I think about, about my daughter, where those are problems that are, you know, we're not resolved. And I don't think they're even technical problems, most about business models and how you how you deal with information on the internet. But those are difficult things. Thanks, Luca, for your time today. Um, really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our third episode. I had a lot of fun chatting with Luca, and we've had a great experience working with Donsec. If your company needs a security audit, or you'd like to learn more about the services that Donsec provides, please go visit them at donsec.com. If you have any suggestions for guests or topics, please send an email at podcast at goteleport.com. This podcast was created by Teleport. Teleport allows engineers and security professionals to unified access for SSH servers, Kubernetes clusters, web applications and databases across all environments. To learn more, visit us at goteleport.com.